I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. At this point, Uber has been around for so long, it's hard to remember a time without it. A time when you used to pick up your home phone, call an operator, ask for a taxi, and spell out the name of your street if they had trouble. Of course, thanks to Uber, your local taxi company probably has an app now. When Uber launched, it stole rides from cabs with two things, technology and low prices. It was almost always both faster and cheaper to take an Uber. And if you were landing in a city that you didn't know, Uber was more convenient than figuring out transportation. This wasn't good news for taxi drivers. It wasn't great for Uber drivers. It wasn't even great for Uber itself, who took a loss on almost all of those rides just to get you using the service. Because Uber had a plan. Once Uber utterly dominated the market... Once it was in every city and on everyone's phone, that's when the profits would come. That's how they attracted investors. That's how they kept growing. They are very good at it, and they've now been doing it for 13 years. So, of course, by now the profits are through the... Huh? What's that? I'm hearing, I'm hearing they're not. I'm hearing 13 years later Uber is still losing money almost on every ride. How is that possible? Let's find out. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Alison Griswold is a London-based journalist who writes a newsletter called Oversharing, in which she recently delved into Uber's finances. Hey, Alison. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for your thorough look. Um at this company, which has been around for an insane amount of time to think about for some reason. Yeah, I mean, Uber was founded in 2009. It was one of the early companies in the wave of what we think of as the quote-unquote sharing economy. So Uber, Airbnb, these companies that encouraged you to to share an existing asset with someone else. But of course, it's not really sharing because it's a service we pay for. Right. Um, Tell me a little bit about its origins. Uh, Where did it come from? You know, it's it seems so ubiquitous now that, uh, as I said in the intro to this podcast, I think a lot of us don't really remember a time without it. Yeah, I think sort of the ultimate uh, example of that is that we use Uber as a verb. Right. So people will say I'm Ubering there. Mm -hmm. And that's how, you know, a company is ubiquitous. Uh, Uber was started by Travis Kalanick in San Francisco. Um, Though the origin story sort of varies, but San Francisco is sort of the first market the company was in. And as it often goes with startup CEOs, the story is sort of that Travis and some of his friends were trying to get a cab one night. It was snowing. There weren't really any cars available. And they thought, wouldn't it be great if we could just press a button on our phone and a car would show up? 
And that was the premise for Uber. When it debuted, what was Uber's value proposition and, and how did it use that to gain such a strong foothold? I guess I'm looking for how, how quickly it became so ubiquitous and why. Mm-hmm. The value proposition was just that a lot of people don't like the experience of hailing a taxi cab, you know? It depends where you are, of course, it's different city by city, but often it could be very frustrating to hail a cab. There might be none available. You know, New York famously had the taxi medallion system, and by the time Uber was launching and getting going, a taxi medallion was valued, I think, at over a million dollars because it was just a classic example of um, constrained supply and high demand, right? So you had a lot of people who wanted to get a taxi, and then the city had placed a limit on how many people could be licensed to drive cars. So you had this supply-demand mismatch, and what Uber did was it came into that market and it increased the supply by putting more cabs out there for people to hail. Of course, that obviously had ramifications for the taxi industry, which set up a ton of clashes uh, across the country. How did it come to dominate um, taxis to the point that maybe it doesn't so much anymore, but there was definitely a period where it was basically wiping out the cab companies. How did it do that and and what did it cost Uber? I think it's a combination of things, right? You press this button on your phone. Uber says, we've found a car for you. It will be there in this many minutes. It's pretty reliable. In the beginning, it was often cheaper than taxis because one of the things that Uber did was it raised a ton of money from investors and then it threw a lot of that money into subsidizing rides. So for a long time, uh, you might even argue still sometimes people don't actually pay the true value of the service that's being provided to them because the ride or whatever else you're getting from Uber is being subsidized by the funding that it's raised. And so that made Uber very popular very quickly because it was offering a cheap, reliable, fast, convenient service that was just clearly better than the alternative, which was a traditional taxi. This is where we get into um, the business side of things, which is why we wanted to talk to you, because you explained it so well. So the point of subsidizing these rides with investors' money um, is to ultimately achieve what? In theory, the point of subsidizing rides is to help your service grow faster, right? Because the basic idea of Uber is that it is more convenient and better overall to get an Uber than to get a car. But for people to understand that, they have to try it, right? They're not going to necessarily see it on a billboard and and be convinced. So how do you get people to try your service? You give them a coupon, you give them a discount, you ask them to refer their friends. And these were all strategies that Uber did in the beginning. And they also did it on the driver side because we have to remember that Uber is a two-sided platform. So on one hand, you have the customers and that's the discounts and subsidies we've been talking about. And then on the other side, you have the people who are actually driving the cars, providing the labor, Mm -hmm. and you need to recruit those people too. So it sort of went both ways. Uh, Uber in the beginning also heavily subsidized the driver's side, so it would offer these really sort of promising bonuses to sign up or these goals you could hit where you'd get a lot of money. Uh, Early on, Uber famously advertised that drivers in New York City could make uh, over $90,000 a year as a median wage driving for Uber, which turned out to be 
uh, factually incorrect, or we might say false advertising. Right. <laughs> um, that was 13 years ago, or at least in the first few years. So what kind of scale have they achieved um, worldwide, I guess, in terms of in terms of countries, rides, whatever metrics you want to use? Sure. I mean, Uber reports this all because now it's a public company. So in its some of its most recent filings, Uber said that it does business in 72 countries around the world, 10,500 cities. Last year, it had 118 million monthly active users, and it did 6.3 billion, <laughs> with a B, rides and deliveries, because Uber also operates uh, various delivery services, right. the most well-known of which is Uber Eats for food delivery. That sounds like enormous scale. Are, are there any other apps that uh, compete with that? Like, that's huge, right? Yeah, it's huge. Um, there are regional competitors. Uber is probably the most ubiquitous at a global level. But, you know, Uber famously tried to break into China um, and failed as many Silicon Valley companies before it have also failed. Uh, so there's sort of a regional competitor in China that commands that market, Didi. Uh, there's Ola in India. There's Lyft would be the smaller Uber rival in the US. Mm -hmm. There's There's a number of competitors in the UK and Europe. But Uber... Uber is, I would say, the one where if you live in the West and you are traveling between countries, Uber is the app that you have on your phone when you leave and you can also use when you land. So, so far, the master plan is going perfectly. You subsidize rides and drivers at the beginning to get everybody onto the app. Everybody becomes dependent on it. You scale to the point where it's global. And at that point, the profits start rolling in, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, before we go to profits, I do think an important side note to make on what you just said is that the strategy of subsidizing rides also had important political connotations for Uber. Explain that. Yeah. Like we were talking about, there was a lot of opposition to Uber from the taxi industry. Mm -hmm. And also in many sort of cities and states at different levels, there were often heavy regulations of the taxi industry to protect drivers and their livelihoods. Right. And so Uber in the beginning, and by in the beginning, I really mean the first five plus years of its existence, often launched in new markets without permission and an explicit defiance of these rules. And again, it, when it did this, it was a similar bet to if we subsidize rides, people will try it and they'll like it and they'll keep taking our service. The political bet was if we break the rules and we launch our service while the regulators are trying to shut us down, people will start to like our service so much that it will become politically unviable for the local politicians and regulators to be against us. And then we will use this political clout and like the support of our users who are local constituents to get the rules changed in our favor. And this was a very successful strategy for Uber. Okay, so now everything really has come together. They've even managed to bend regulations to their will. At what point does all this pay off and the money starts rolling in? Right, and so that's sort of the, the problem is that on a unit level, it's unclear whether Uber is still able to make money. And by unit, I mean sort of the most basic level of each ride or each delivery, taking account of all the different costs that go into that. So paying the driver, paying insurance, um, 
paying the share of employees that have to be employed to make sure the technology works, all these sorts of unit level costs. And a, a saying in Silicon Valley is sort of, you know, we lose money now, but we make it up at scale. <laughs> but the flaw in that argument is that if you lose money on every transaction, then more scale just means bigger losses. And that has been a problem for a lot of these companies that didn't get what we call their unit economics right in the beginning and managed to become very big and very successful by a lot of measures, but now are struggling to actually turn a profit. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is going to sound like a rhetorical question, but it's not really. If a company is not turning a profit on its core service after 13 years, why is it still running? I think it's a actually it's a very good question. I would say it's almost a philosophical question at this point. Uber has plenty of controversy. Yeah. It has not always treated its workers well. A lot of people would argue it still does not treat its workers well. Um, it's been mired in various political controversies. Like I said, arguably the way that it grew to scale and launched in a lot of cities was in flagrant defiance of the law. Um, you know, under Travis Kalanick, it did a lot of things bordering on illegal. Famously, it had a program called Grayball that sort of evaded law enforcement. And there are just lots of slimy examples in the in the company's history. So we have all that on, on one hand. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you just have the fact that Uber is a great service. I mean, you can dislike the company for ethical reasons. You can take issue with its business practices. But what it offers is just objectively a superior product to getting a cab in the traditional sense. It's unclear whether Uber will ever make money, but a lot of people think the rides system and a lot of things about the world even are better now that Uber is here. And so that's that's a dilemma because it suggests that, I don't want to say too big to fail, but it suggests that there's sort of an intrinsic value to this company that is also not making money after 13 years. It's interesting that you say that because I had the phrase too big to fail in one of my questions uh, for later on. And that's mm -hmm. that's what I'm really trying to get at. And, you know, you mentioned there were a lot of investors at the beginning um, that were giving Uber some of this money that it was using. I guess my question is, at what point over the past 13 years, uh, if ever, does that investment start to dry up? Like if you put in money 12 years ago, you'd surely be looking for a return sooner than this. Well, and what you have to remember is people who put in money 12 years ago probably have made a big return, right? Because right. Uh, if you want to look at the numbers a little bit, like Uber is currently trading on the stock market at about $24 a share, which is 
underwater from the price it went public at a couple years ago. Its IPO price was $45 a share. So, you know, 24 is significantly less than that. But the early investors in Uber probably bought in at, I don't, I don't have the table in front of me, but they were buying in at, you know, dollars a share. Mm -hmm. So those people have made their money. They've made their multiples. They've made their big returns. Where you get in trouble is if you were a later stage investor at Uber, you purchased in at $45 a share in the IPO or in one of the later rounds, which would have been closer to that price. And now your investment or what you've hung on to of it is underwater. And so you are losing money on this transaction and waiting for the company's fortunes to turn around. I just want to clarify something because I don't think I actually asked you this question yet. But in total, do we know how much money Uber has lost over its history? Um, I, I added up its net income numbers since it started publicly reporting them, which was a little bit before it went public. And so the net income over that period, which is since the first quarter of 2017, is negative $24.7 billion, which hmm. is a lot of money. You know, I pulled some sort of random comparisons just for a sense of scale. So when I when I looked at this a week ago, you know, the market may have changed, but that was about the same as the market cap of Delta Airlines, the GDP of El Salvador, hmm. or 366,000 times the U.S. median household income. So like, it's a lot of money. A, a criticism people will have of this statistic is that Uber's net income numbers include fluctuations in its equity investment. So Uber has stakes in some of its other ride competitors. Mm. And those companies also, you know, go up and down. And so some of its some of Uber's big gains and losses in recent quarters have been largely attributed to the change in the value of its equity investments. But again, I think if you just think of it as sort of a rough metric of looking at the company's fortunes over a long period of time, like it's instructive. So what do Uber executives say about the continued losses? Um, what are they telling investors aside from, uh, I guess, that some of this is due to stock fluctuations of other companies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uber has been talking for a while about becoming more focused on profitability. Um, this was like a tonal shift we saw when Dara Khosrowshahi took over as CEO from Travis Kalanick a bit before the IPO. Um, it sort of happened again at the IPO. Uh, in recent years, Uber's done a number of things to try to hone in on profitability. Uh, so it sold its driverless car unit. It sort of handed off its unit that did micromobility, so e-bikes and e-scooters. It decided it would exit food delivery markets where it wasn't one of the winning players. Um, and it laid people off. Hmm. So it's done all these things, and yet it's still sort of struggling to consistently turn a profit, even though some of the numbers have improved. So what is next for Uber then, I guess, in the short or the long term? You know, you just mentioned an awful lot of things that companies will typically try. Are there any other levers left for them to pull? What do they plan to do? I think the thing we have to remember, right, is that the lever Uber always has is that it can raise prices. So Uber doesn't want to do that because the premise of Uber, as we were talking about, is that it's a better, cheaper, faster, 
more efficient version of a taxi. And it would somewhat be Uber eating its words if Uber had to say, you know what, actually, we're a luxury service. And to make this work, we have to raise our prices. And you're going to be paying as much, if not a little bit more, to get an Uber than you would be to to get a taxi. But haven't they done that in some places already? And again, this is anecdotal, so you know, don't take my word for it. But here in Toronto, where transportation is always a problem, um, Uber costs the same as a cab now. Like it's there's no difference. And I, I was an early Uber user back in the day, and and it was significantly cheaper, like significantly cheaper. And now it's it's comparable, if not sometimes more expensive, when surge pricing is turned on. Yeah, so Uber has sort of tacitly admitted that it's raising prices, I would say, uh, because you might be aware that one thing Uber is working on sort of for this year and in the future is it's now starting to partner with actual taxi companies, which is obviously ironic considering where Uber came from. But also in these releases, it's put out about its its early cab partnerships. It sort of said... Getting a cab through Uber, which will be charged at the metered rate of the cab, will be roughly the same price as an UberX. So while the company hasn't come out and said, we've raised our prices, we now cost the same as a cab, I think you can read between the lines on those deal statements that it's made about uh, partnerships with cab companies and say, okay, Uber is admitting that in certain markets, important big markets, a cab and an Uber are about the same price. Uber is no longer, you know, 15% cheaper, 40% cheaper than a taxi. And and sim- similar to you, anecdotally, I think this has been true for a while. I mean, last time I was in New York City, I took cabs. I didn't take Ubers because they were cheaper. Is that how Uber becomes too big to fail? As you mentioned earlier, you know, partnerships with taxi companies, uh, owning stakes in its rivals, and then just raising the price till at least they break even. Is that like the end game here? Because there doesn't seem to be a big breakthrough on the horizon that maybe we were expecting in terms of profitability. Right. So the end game that used to be talked about was this idea that driverless cars would come around. And then Uber would get rid of human drivers, which are its main expense, replace them with driverless cars, and then it would be making money hand over fist. How's that going so far? Yeah, there are a lot of problems with this argument, one of which is that driverless cars are perpetually five years away, because five years, in my opinion, is long enough that it seems tangibly on the horizon and far enough that three years down the line, you can be like, oh, sorry, it's going to be five more years. Sounds about right. (laughs) Right. So we have yet to have functioning driverless car service at scale for this sort of application. There are some pilots that are going with Waymo and other places, but but as a practical commercial matter, it doesn't exist. And then sort of a secondary argument you can make of that is, okay, um, you know, when Uber gets driverless cars at scale, what's to stop Lyft from getting them? What's to stop Ola and Didi and every other ride hill player from also having driverless cars? You know, why is it that once this technology exists, Uber is going to be making so much money because it seems like everyone will have it. And then maybe you'll just have a race to the bottom on pricing and they'll all still be losing money. Um, So that's sort of another problem with that argument, in my opinion. 
so so that leaves us with what you said, what is the end game right now? And I would say, yeah, the end game is how does Uber make its ride service and its eat service consistently profitable in a way that satisfies investors, keeps drivers happy enough to continue working and keeps enough customers on the platform that it makes money? And I think the answer to that is you charge people as much as you can without alienating them. This is where we always end up, isn't it? Yeah. And again, another wrinkle here with Uber is that Uber has, you know, it used to have surge pricing. And so when you ordered a car, you might get that little pop up. This was years ago. They would say demand is demand is off the charts. Like prices are 2.3 times higher than usual. Do you accept? And then you'd accept, right? And then you'd have a an $80 cab ride. You don't get that warning anymore. Yes, you don't get that warning anymore. So prices are still variable or dynamic, we might say, but Uber no longer gives you the surge warning. It just, every time you order a car, it gives you a different price that's sort of hyper-targeted to where you are, where you're going, what the traffic conditions are at the time, possibly just what Uber knows about you as a consumer, which is the sort of scary part. So Uber is getting increasingly advanced at what an economist might call price discrimination. And that's important when we're talking about margins and we're talking about profitability, because it means that barring some sort of regulatory change or legal barrier to doing this, Uber could charge you the maximum price you're willing to pay while paying the driver the minimum price the driver is willing to accept and take the biggest cut from the middle. Allison, why do all these strategies always end up with squeezing ordinary humans? <laughs> uh, well, because, you know, capitalism is about companies making money. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because... Co- Even companies that don't make money. Right. Like, I, I think sometimes we oversimplify when we say it's bad for companies to make money. And again, this is sort of a philosophical point, but but companies need to make money, right? Because companies employ people and people need to be paid. Mm-hmm. And if the company isn't making money, I mean, again, question mark with Uber. But in general, if the company isn't making money, that's when we end up with layoffs and people losing their jobs and like various bad things that we don't want to happen. So there's nothing wrong with a company wanting to make money, but it's sort of a question of how much and how they go about it and who else is losing out on the way there. Allison, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me. Allison Griswold. You can sign up for her newsletter by going to oversharing.substack.com. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, Email us hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, you can find this podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review, download them so you have something to listen to on your next long Uber ride. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007... TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn. 
and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.